Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 28th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. We are joined by Haley Bird and Andrew Eggers of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me uh, right before we began. Uh, Haley, I, I confess that uh, I'm just not sure how many Americans understand that we are actively engaged in the war in Yemen. Um, and when I, when, when I read your story, this morning about uh, what the Senate is doing, uh, Senate gearing up for Yemen war powers debate. I actually was was slightly startled. I'm not, I'm not proud of this. You know, to read your second paragraph sponsored by a bipartisan coalition, including Senators Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee and Chris Murphy. The proposed bill would direct the removal of American armed forces from Yemen and in the United States assistance to Saudi led forces in the bloody stalemate. I knew we were assisting the Saudis. But I, I have to admit, my eyebrows went up. Uh, removal of American armed forces from Yemen. I, so, Charlie, I, really, we have who's we there? have been so we have people over there, like military advisors and others, who have been helping since 2015 with uh, aerial targeting, intelligence sharing. Um, they used to help with mid-flight aerial refueling for Saudi aircraft, um, but we stopped that about a month ago. Um, the Department of Defense ended that uh, policy that they were sharing those uh, resources. So we've been helping since 2015. And the argument from Sanders and Lee and Murphy and others who support this resolution is, you know, Congress never authorized, you know, U.S. involvement in this war. Um, and right now we want you to leave. Um, and, and these resolutions don't happen commonly or, or frequently. The last time this one was voted on was in March of this year, and it failed on a on a very niche p- procedural vote, uh, 55 to 44, I believe. Uh, there were 10, 10 Democrats who voted against it last time. So those are the, the people we're really watching this time around to see if they've changed their vote uh, because of the way the administration has handled the Khashoggi murder. The This has become a humanitarian nightmare, obviously, and it has been even before the, the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But um, the 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 rationale for this war um, is that it is a it is a proxy war with with Iranians with the with the Iranians. Um, what 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 exactly is the war in Yemen about? So there's there's this group called the Houthis who are in there who have taken parts of Yemen, and so it, at this point it's become like a very bloody stalemate. Like I wrote in my piece this morning, um, and there was a very good New York Times piece, I believe last month that was just diving into uh, how Saudi Arabia has sort of waged this economic war against that region, which has led to just this horrible famine happening. And there's estimates from some human rights groups that, you know, more than 80,000 children have died from this famine, just died of hunger. Um, So so the argument from American, you know, defense folks, so Mike Pompeo, for instance, uh, Secretary of State, he wrote an op-ed last night uh, saying, you know, this this is a humanitarian nightmare, and you know, you know, the United States is actually helping. Uh, look at the hundreds of millions of dollars we've put into um, humanitarian aid for that region. But it, the fact still remains that we are helping in this war with the Saudi coalition. All right. So today, yeah, you have James Mattis and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who are going to be delivering a briefing on on the on the conflict. And then do we expect an actual vote on the floor of the United States Senate on uh, the invocation of the War Powers Act? We do. So it's going to have to happen because it's a privileged resolution. Um, So, you know, leadership can't block it. Uh, We're expecting the vote either today or tomorrow. 
Bob Corker told us last night that it could happen possibly next week. So it's sort of up in the air right now. Uh, I think we'll know more after this briefing with Mattis and Pompeo. And again, a lot of these folks, you know, are still undecided on how they're going to vote because they're waiting to hear in this briefing uh, some some answers to some questions that they have. And we, it remains to be seen whether those questions are actually going to be answered because, you know, the administration has sort of not allowed the intelligence community to have a say in this. Uh, a lot of a lot of senators have said, oh, please send Gina Haspel to come talk to us about the CIA assessment. And she, as far as I know, is not actually going to show up to this. So this went down last time. You mentioned on a procedural vote uh, with five Republicans supporting the resolution, along with most of the Democrats, uh, most Republicans, 10 Democrats opposed it. Um, your story seems to suggest that uh, that that Democrats, um, that there is, there's, there's a shift, obviously, in opinion, you know, post uh, the Khashoggi murder. But also, it seems like a lot of people are very much undecided, including um the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. He was, on Monday night, I would say he sounded more likely to support the resolution than he did yesterday, uh, just judging by his comments, because, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> on Monday he was saying, you know, my view of Saudi Arabia has changed a ton. And he, he said, you know, that that has changed for a lot of his colleagues as well. Um, but yesterday he was saying, you know, this is an entity we want to have a relationship, one we want to keep. Uh, he he repeatedly used the phrase, we don't want to cut our nose off to spite our face. Uh, but he has he seems to be predicting, you know, the Trump administration hasn't given us an opportunity to extract, you know, retribution for the Khashoggi murder. And a lot of his colleagues may view this vote as that opportunity. Um, he's saying, you know, that there's an imbalance that needs to be fixed. And so you, as, yeah. go, on. go ahead, sure. go ahead. Well, you also mentioned that uh, Lindsey Graham, who has at least in public called for you know a, a strong response to uh, the killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, still says he's going to oppose this resolution because that affects our relationship with other countries. I think it's the wrong way to deal with this problem. So even Lindsey Graham, who appeared to be taking a hard line against the Saudis, is uh, going to oppose the, the this this resolution, which would uh, uh, end our alliance with the Saudis in in this humanitarian disaster. Yeah, so I, it's it's a you know complex situation, and I think a lot of Republicans, even those like Lindsey Graham, who have said you know MBS has to go, um, view other options like sanctions or um, other diplomatic options to retaliate as more effective than pulling out of this um, conflict. And I don't. It remains to be seen whether Corker votes against the resolution because you know he he has been signaling, oh maybe this could hurt us more than it helps us. Um, but it, it really depends. He also was saying, you know, this might give people an opportunity to uh, bring forward a lot of unrelated amendments in a voterama that might be happening uh, in the lead up to the vote. So we could see a lot of different foreign policy questions come into play here. OK, just just one procedural question. I think I asked you before the uh, the, the, the podcast. This is not just a non-binding resolution. This is the real deal. If it, in fact, passes the Senate, though, it would have to go to the House of Representatives, correct? Yes. So it's it's a war power resolution. So it's invoking the War Powers Act uh, from the 1970s. Um, and the administration's stance is, you know, Congress, the, the White House has this power and Congress can't do this. Um, and so so it could trigger like this big legal debate that could happen afterward. But it's probably not going to get to that point because the House of Representatives, from everything we've seen under this Republican leadership in the House, does not seem likely to bring this forward for a vote. 
Yeah, um, I want I, I wanted to start with with this. I want to get to the 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 Mueller Manafort Trump tweet meltdown in, in a moment. But I wanted to start with this because this seems to be in this category of uh, grotesquely undercovered stories in the era of Trump that we actually are engaged in this war. And as I mentioned to you before, I'm old enough to remember when we actually knew about the wars this country was engaged in. We had you know more robust debates about it than we have now. And this this strikes me as uh, perhaps not even in the top ten. Uh, you know, stories in, in the public's consciousness. Uh, so, Andrew, could you explain what where we're at now in the Mueller investigation? We have had a just a series of developments over the last 48 hours, uh, you know, to, to navigate, including the the revelation that uh, Paul Manafort, uh, or at least the special prosecutor said Paul Manafort was lying to the special prosecutor, had broken his deal. Um, they want to move ahead with sentencing. Then we have the story. Uh, big question mark over that story. I put asterisks, asterisks all around the uh, Guardian story that suggests that Paul Manafort had met with Julian Assange. Uh, then we get, of course, uh, the Jerome Corsi story, um, conspiracy theorist, a buddy of of, uh, of Roger Stone, who apparently now has entered into a joint defense agreement with Donald Trump, refusing to uh, to agree to a plea deal, um, leaking documents to the Washington Post, which certainly seem to suggest that uh, he and Roger Stone had had foreknowledge of all of this. I'm, I'm just taking all this down. Um, and then we have the story that uh, Paul Manafort uh, all along, when he was uh, purportedly cooperating with the special counsel, was feeding information about this to Trump's lawyers. So, I mean, and then, of course, you have the president's tweet meltdown this morning. So what, what the hell, Andrew? Where well, are we yeah, I mean, you, you sort of just hit every major <laughs> highlight, Charlie, which is I was trying. Been, I figured I missed something. But yeah, it's been it's been a very, very crazy few days. Um, the the sort of official White House line, depending on who you're listening to, is is one of two things. On the on the one hand, you have Sarah Sanders uh, speaking up yesterday and saying, look, uh, the president still knows that he's innocent of anything regarding collusion. Uh, he still knows this whole thing's a big non-story, and so he's not really worried or concerned about it. And then if you listen to Trump himself, as he you know goes day after day into sort of Twitter storm after Twitter storm after Twitter storm about Mueller and about his uh, purported crimes against justice and uh, his his gang of angry Democrats who are determined never to prosecute you know Hillary Clinton for anything she did, but are determined to bring Trump down. Um, you know he he uh, the the crazy thing he did this morning uh, was retweet this this meme showing uh, a whole slew of his political opponents uh, from Barack Obama to Bill and Hillary Clinton to Mueller to uh, uh, who who all was in there to James Comey to. Uh, Loretta Lynch, just like a, a, the whole uh, Rod, Rod Rosenstein, Rosenstein, his own deputy attorney general who he appointed, <laughs> all these people behind bars in prison saying, when will the trials for treason start? So that was uh, clearly Trump is melting down in, in a lot of ways here. Um, but yes, as, as far as the actual story of the new developments in the probe are concerned, it's, it's mostly centered around these people uh, like Jerome Corsi and Roger Stone, who are essentially they just muddy the waters a lot more, right? Because the, 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 the big question around all of these reports about Manafort and Stone and Corsi has always been, did Stone, who was you know a, a big figure in the Trump campaign uh, at this time in 2016, did he have foreknowledge uh, and or for, uh, was he even perhaps uh, tied up in planning this big WikiLeaks 
thing uh, where the emails that were stolen from the Democratic National uh, Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign were leaked, obviously was a huge deal in the 2016 election. And the question is, was Stone tied up in that? Um, now, Corsi is saying that, yes, there was some connection between the two of them, that that Stone wanted him to communicate with WikiLeaks in order to time this drop uh, for to, to distract from the access Hollywood tape. I mean, like just as I'm trying to go over all of this, it's like, it's like playing, you know, uh, buzzword bingo or something like that. That's how confusing this whole story is. Cause it, it connects with all these different things. I think that the main takeaway uh, sort of coming out of this sort of howling whirlwind of, of terms and names and things like that is that, you know, all these people are grifters. All these people are conspiracy theorists and hacks, Corsi, Stone, Manafort, obviously, it doesn't pay overly much to try to look at the ramblings of all of these nuts and try to, you know, deduce out what where each of them is telling the truth and where each of them is trying to lie to save their own skin and or to make themselves look important or whatever. I think that the big takeaway is that, you know, when there's a guy like Mueller who is in possession of so many, you know, sort of procedural weapons and so many resources and things like that, who is able to nab any of these guys for any lie that they tell him, uh, clearly the fact that all of these guys are playing off of one another and trying to get, you know, the upper hand on one another and things like that is good news for Mueller specifically, right? If Mueller's trying to get his hands on the truth, he's going to have all kinds of leverage over these kinds of people. Uh, now, the fact still remains that Trump continues to deny that that he or anyone in his campaign ever participated in anything resembling collusion. And that may very well still be the case, right? I mean, there, that that has not been disproven at, at, at all. Like that, that uh, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, that's still the strongest possibility that, that there wasn't anything... Um, you know, direct any direct communication between Trump, the Trump campaign and Russia. However, I think that what what we have learned, if anything, from these last few days of stories is that if such collusion did occur, uh, that it's more likely than ever that Mueller is going to be able to sort of ferret that out. He, he I mean, every time there's a new story like this with a new person who is uh, potentially going to get nabbed on lying to the FBI charges, a new person who's trying to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ha have to do a plea deal or whatever. I mean, that only strengthens Mueller's hand at well, this point. Every single person in Trump world, it seems like has, has he's got one string or another on. And, uh, and, and that I think is going to be the main takeaway out of all this rather than trying to, to, to jump okay. ahead to the conclusion. If that's, because, if that's fair to say, because one of my questions was the, the, the revelations about, uh, about Manafort, uh, in, in particular, uh, you know, one theory would be that in fact, this is a setback for, for Mueller because he's lost what was uh, regarded as one of his star witnesses. It now turns out that behind his back, he was feeding information to. To, uh, to Trump's lawyers, and so there's there's going to be no trial um, in which Paul Manafort and uh, Corsi are going to be the star witnesses. So, you know, is this a an indication that perhaps Mueller did not have all the cards that he thought he would have? Well, my my rejoinder to that would be, you know. Manafort, or I'm sorry, Mueller would not be able to nab Manafort for lying unless he was were already possessed of the information that Manafort has supposed was supposedly misleading him about, right? So, I mean, the the fact that you know he's able to get Manafort at the same time that Manafort is supposedly on some level communicating with Trump's legal team, uh, you know, it, I yes, mm. I, I do think I do think if it goes to a trial. Uh, which of course, of course, of course, is ten or twelve gigantic, 
gigantic developments down the road that that could ever possibly even happen with with you know Trump on uh, Trump before you know the Supreme Court or something like that. Still an incredibly unlikely scenario. If that were to happen, then yes, I would grant that okay. Manafort or, or I'm sorry again that Mueller would want Manafort on the stand in that situation. But I just think that you know again I just think that the the procedural yeah. weapons that 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 Mueller has are so strong that like. Whatever information is out there, it seems mind-bogglingly unlikely that he wouldn't be able to uncover it uh, okay, at this well, stage. Yeah, the 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 more immediate question, of course, is uh, yeah, what about a pardon? Is Donald Trump going to pardon Paul Manafort? Uh, you had a piece yesterday. What could Manafort gain by lying to Mueller? And uh, the most obvious answer is um, well, because he's uh, he's rolling the dice and figures that the president's going to use that uh, that authority. And it's clearly, the the president is uh, working himself uh, to convincing himself that uh, there's been a terrible injustice done to his buddy Paul Manafort. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are there are really three possibilities, and one of them I didn't really get into into in my piece because it's maybe the most wildly speculative of all of them. Which is, you know, some people have suggested that maybe Manafort doesn't care about spending the rest of his life in prison because he's on Good. the run from his buddies in the Russian mafia or whatever, who clearly is he's no longer of good use to them. Uh, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because if, if Manafort wanted to spend the rest of his life in prison, he wouldn't have had to fight this thing out for over a year uh, already. Um, then the other two uh, possibilities that are you know not not incredibly good odds for Manafort either are, yes, the, the notion that, that he is still uh, shilling for a pardon. And it, it is true that, you know, Pretty much any time Manafort comes up in the news, Trump is sort of going out of his way to sort of dangle that pardon in front of Manafort, not by saying, I am going to pardon you, but just by continually ruminating on how unjust the whole proceedings were, how unfair to Manafort, how they really took down a good guy, which is all garbage, by the way. I mean, if you read, if you've, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the, the indictments against Manafort by now, but the guy was a total, total hack, grifter. Worked mm-hmm. for the pro-Russian Ukrainian government while concealing the fact that he was doing that from the U.S. government in order to hide a bunch of tax money. Just a real bad egg. Um, anyway, the the third possibility uh, is just that Manafort really goofed. That he, I mean, that that he's built his whole career uh, on pulling fast ones over on sort of everyone around him and just sort of hubristically thought that he could continue to do that on Mueller even well after the point where it would have been in his own potential Mm self-interest to do so and just sort of dispositionally enable to turn off the constant dissembling, constant misleading, constant lying. Uh, And again, none of those, none of those uh, are like incredibly compelling, convincing uh, arguments for why Manafort did this. None of them, none of you wouldn't have turned to any of those arguments to predict that Paul right. Manafort was going to to lie, but the the sort of fact of the matter appears to be that he did do this extremely strange thing of sort of kamikazeing his own plea deal <laughs> by by continuing to lie. So it's 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 a really real head scratch of a decision, and those are the well, explanations that I've seen. He, he um, uh, you know, this once again, just stepping back again, once again, it's a reminder when you're with the fact that we're sitting here talking about Paul Manafort, uh, Corsi, Roger Stone, you know, the the. The role that Donald Trump has played in bringing some of these misfit toys into the center of American politics. I mean, it, it, is, it is like he cast his eye around, you know, to find uh, some of the, the, the worst the worst people in the world. And somehow they all ended up uh, being associated with the president of the United States. OK, Haley, let's, I'm going to switch back to something else here. Um, I assume that by now we've had a chance to uh, to look at at least uh, reports about the president's uh, sit down with The Washington Post yesterday. Um, long, well, not long, but 
rambling refusal to take any responsibility at all for economics issues. What I found interesting was his um, his willingness to uh, attack the chairman of the Fed, uh, Jay Powell, his own appointee, who is not happy with at all and uh, suggesting that everything that's going on with uh, with the stock market, uh, with the economy, including the shutdown of the GM plants is the Fed's fault, but that none of his policies have anything to do with it. Now, <laughs> uh, you, you, you've been talking to people on 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 Capitol Hill. Um, the, the the president has threatened to invoke his national security tariffs against the auto industry. Any sense what the next step is? The president of the United States essentially threatening retaliation against General Motors for these layoffs? So it's it's fascinating, but it wouldn't be entirely surprising. And the thing here is, you know, the president has sort of waged this ongoing war against U.S. auto manufacturers. You have, you know, steel and aluminum tariffs and you have uh, these uh, these new auto rules in NAFTA that are going to increase cost of compliance and ultimately could lead to some uh, some manufacturers just leaving the United States and going abroad and just sucking it up and taking the 2.5% tariff that we have right now. But this uh, is exactly the opposite of what the tariffs are supposed to do, right? I mean, in, in, in MAGA world, the tariffs are supposed to protect those manufacturing jobs. They're supposed to bring manufacturing jobs here. Exactly. It, so his, his argument is, you know, if we put up 25% tariffs on uh, foreign automobiles, and that also includes some automobile parts, um, that doesn't get talked about enough because that would also hurt U.S. manufacturers who bring in parts from abroad and then put them together here. Um, if, if he does that, I mean, it could you know lead to some of them staying here because you, you still have to access that market. But overall, it's going to really hurt American consumers. Like That's going to add thousands of dollars to the price of your vehicle. Um, it, so, so it's, it's just fascinating that he, it, it, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but basically I talked to Rob Portman about this, um, on Monday, which I think you had seen. And yeah. I asked him, you know, do you think that's possible that he could, uh, retaliate by doing this? And he said, I hope not because it'll make it even worse for autos in the United States. Um, and so Portman, I, I also talked to him about the GM decision. You know, GM hasn't said, oh, it was because of tariffs, but we we do know they've lost about a billion dollars because of the tariffs, which could pay for you know thousands of salaries. Um, and so you had Sharon Sherrod Brown, who's the Democrat from Ohio, who you know actually finds himself aligned with President Trump on a lot of trade matters. Um, he told me, you know, bring that up with Trump. I don't know what to say to you. I don't think it's the tariffs to blame. Uh, mm. Donald Trump, in in an interview, I believe, with the Wall Street Journal on Monday or Tuesday night was saying, un, you know, totally unprovoked about this, just made sure to note that, oh, it's not the tariffs, by the way. It's not because of the tariffs that I've implemented that this is why they're moving. Um, so it, it, there's a certain point where it's like, how many, how many trade policies are you going to implement that are completely unfavorable to U.S. Auto, auto manufacturing, and then just like have a little fit every single time they make a decision like this. Yeah, if I can, if I could add one thing to that real quick, I think that's like a really crucial point because this is one of the areas where, uh, and this is you know maybe kind of a mean way to put it, but like the president's sort of incredibly short attention span and and his his fixation on on tiny granular details uh, and the way that he sort of 
wields the whole sort of heft of U.S. policy in order to check these tiny little granular boxes that, that he sees as the really important things, this is one of those areas where that really becomes a danger because uh, what, what we've essentially seen here is is the president playing whack-a-mole with uh, with U.S. trade policy, where he sees a specific problem, the metals, the metal industries, uh, domestic metal industries can't compete with foreign metal. So we're going to implement a bunch of new tariffs in order to uh, prop up our domestic manufacturing of raw metal. Obviously, that hurts the auto industry. So now we see the auto industry start to try to shift some things offshore to to compete with that. Now you see Donald Trump uh, just an hour ago tweeting out that that. Now maybe it's time to put new tariffs on on the the importation of automobiles because Great. that's you, you can't Great. you can't keep doing this you can't keep addressing each new problem that your that your last tariff policy caused <laughs> by slapping on a new tariff I mean there's well, there's can. just no end to that I mean yeah I mean you apparently can't. Donald can. Trump, it's not, it's, it's not yes, a good Donald idea. Donald Trump could continue <laughs> to do this every few months. Uh, for the rest of his presidency, uh, slapping a new tariff on whatever problem his last tariff caused. But, he, but he, I mean, he, he's going to run the economy under the ground if he continues to do this. And there's no there's no end principle. There's no off ramp to this uh, because there's always going to be a new problem. There's always going to be a new manufacturing sector that you have hurt by your attempts to help the last manufacturing sector. Right. Because if I could just say one more thing real quick. And the reason for that is because, you know, tariffs aren't. Uh, uh, they're not a net positive. You know, every time you implement a new tariff, you're removing economic value, and so you're you're making the thing harder on the next group than you are making it easier on the first group. And so it's just this big downward spiral, and that's all I have to say. And so, I, I would and, note and, also yeah. um, some of the arguments that you know Trump has made and Sherrod Brown has made do have merit in the sense that yes, uh, GM does benefit from the tax cut. Yes, they've benefited from you know bailouts, but th- there's basically four different fronts in which Trump has been attacking automakers in his trade policy. And you, but if you have to make difficult decisions as, you know, an international automaker, there's not a lot of incentive to have plants in the United States right now. And, and that fact is like hard to ignore when Donald Trump is trying to make it even less friendly to automakers. Well, and a lot of this also ignores the big elephant in the room, which is the the impact of the strong dollar right now on American manufacturers. And the the, the president who seems to have these these fixed ideas about uh, tariffs, um, I'm not sure fully grasp the interplay of, for example, you know, the the massive deficits, the you know economic stimulation of the tax cut <laughs> package, the stronger dollar, what impact that has on the imbalance of trade. Because despite everything he's doing, and Andrew, I like your whack-a-mole uh, an analogy. You know, despite all he's doing on on tariffs, the 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 trade deficit, which is not that important, but the trade deficit keeps going up. Because the strong dollar means that it is easier to buy foreign products and harder to sell American products abroad. And again, these things are all interconnected. And I don't know how we're going to be able to uh, address this. Um, uh, interesting vote, by the way, in the Senate. I want to talk about in just a uh, in a moment, and also uh, another idea for going after the platforms. Uh, this, we, Apparently, we're going to be heading into uh, another era of, uh, of bad ideas. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Mrs. Fields. Now, you've probably gotten some pretty weird or just just useless holiday gifts. Don't you ever wish you would have just gotten cookies instead? For more than 40 years, Mrs. Fields has made delicious treats like their signature chocolate chip cookies, uh, handcrafted frosted favorites, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and Mrs. Fields' gourmet gift tins and baskets make the perfect present to surprise and delight anybody on your list this season. At Mrs. Fields, 
Their cookies and sweets are baked daily and always arrive fresh and flavorful. Ordering is easy, and they can ship your ship your gift anywhere across the U.S. Plus, you can add, listen to this, you can add a personal touch with a custom message, company logo, or family photo, and the cookies will be delivered with that. Mrs. Field even offers a 100% customer satisfaction guarantee, which is pretty sweet. This year, send a fresh baked gift that no one can resist. So right now, get 20% off your order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter promo code STANDARD. That is 20% off any gift at mrsfields.com promo code standard mrs fields.com promo code standard um i mentioned something interesting going on in the senate i don't know much about this but the senate panel has delayed confirmation vote on trump's nominee to lead ice immigration and customs enforcement uh, ronald vitellio is that how you pronounce his name um so yeah, they apparently uh, faced some criticism at the hearing uh, after he refused to rule out the possibility that the Trump administration would resort again to separating parents and children at the border. And uh, apparently today the Senate just decided not to hold the vote, which would suggest that uh, he's got some problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I just Googled that because you mentioned it. It yeah. looks like this basically just happened like a few yeah. minutes ago. Um, I'll have to read up on that. But there, you know, there are several, you know, nominations right now that are facing increased scrutiny. Um, oh, I also saw the president, someone just reported uh, saying the president doesn't really feel any urge to quickly nominate a new attorney general. Um, excellent. Oh, great. Excellent. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and you've had people like Chuck Grassley, uh, Judiciary Committee Chair, saying, you know, he should have nominated someone yesterday. Um, so that pressure might build on Capitol Hill. Uh, that's something I'd be watching as well. You, know, fun, you don't hear much from Whitaker, do you? Yeah. And the <laughs> other fun thing about Matthew Whitaker is I just saw this on Twitter this morning. So this is not my original reporting, but it, it was two weeks ago, uh, that he said that the DOJ announced that he would sort of sit with, with, uh, ethics officials to figure out whether he needed to recuse himself from the Mueller probe because obviously his, all of his, uh, Know, positions about how it was illegal and should be disbanded and all those things that he made clear on cable news prior to his appointment. <laughs> uh, you know, clearly those are an issue for his serving as the overseer of that probe. Uh, that was two weeks ago. He said they would meet with ex- ethics officials. We haven't heard anything about that since. Sort of weird that hasn't happened yet, given that he seems to be settling in for the long haul, just as the president is sort of giving his most sort of outrageous attacks on the institution. Yet, just yesterday, Sarah Sanders would not uh, commit to saying that the White House thinks that the that the indictments that, that Mueller has already brought forward against the Russian nationals and against, you know, people who have lied to the officials, she would not say that those were legitimate indictments. It's really amazing all these things that are happening right now in real time. It's a what a time to be alive, right? Yeah, what a time to be alive. Um, Josh Hawley just got elected to the U.S. Senate from uh, Missouri, really one of yes. the, the stellar, really rising stars. Impressive My boy, guy, Josh attorney. Hawley. Yes. I know you have written about him extensively, Andrew. And if I'm reading this correctly, he is now floating ideas of regulating the Internet platforms as if they were like public utilities. Um, I, I, I can see that you are you're geared up on all. What what the hell is Holly talking about? I'm just not sure. <laughs> yes. I'm, Alas, Josh Hawley, uh, whom <laughs> I like, has, like so many of us before him, been guilty now of a bad tweet. Um, I'm let, let, let me pull it up real quick just so I can read what he said specifically. Okay, so this this all springs from maybe you talked about this in the podcast yesterday, maybe you didn't because you had okay. important things to talk about. Uh, but the, 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 the latest sort of conservative world Twitter snafu, uh, 
Twitter is silencing us sort of thing was this guy, uh, Jesse Kelly, who's a radio host in, uh, I believe, Houston, who uh, um, has this very bombastic Twitter presence uh, where he's mean to me a lot uh, and, and people like that because I'm awful on Twitter. Um, and, and so he got banned, uh, I, I believe over his tweeting some things about how like violence was great and underrated and we should like get back to like enjoying some low key violence in our culture. Um, and people got mad, uh, and, and, and he, he's back on Twitter now, but the, the sort of argument that burbled up over that, uh, was that, because Twitter, um, is not quote unquote a forum for a true diversity of political discourse. They should have to relinquish their status as a platform uh, and be considered a publisher. The legal uh, ramifications of which would be that Twitter would be legally liable for any potentially illegal content that was posted on their site, uh, which Josh Hawley tweeted about yesterday, which is a really dumb argument that doesn't have anything to do with the law that's currently on the books. Uh, it involves misquoting uh, the, uh, the the Communications Decency Act, um, which basically says that uh, that platforms, the internet platforms like Twitter and Facebook or forums or, or what have you, uh, that they have broad leeway to uh, broad leeway to you know censor content on their site that that violates sort of their own standards of decency and and, and sort of fairness and, and what have you. Um, and also says that you know, that that's the law that makes it clear that you can't publish or you can't punish uh, platforms for. Uh, uh, for mm -hmm. essentially not being value neutral, which just which just makes plenty of sense, right? I mean, like nobody's saying that every platform on the internet needs to be value neutral. That would make no sense at all. There are plenty of platforms on the internet that are explicitly not value neutral. That you know, if, 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 you, you could talk about a, an internet forum mm -hmm. for Trump supporters, where they're where they're say, you know, this is for this is a group for people who support the president. If you come in here with your molar memes and your family separation memes and calling all of us bad people, you're going to get banned from that group. And that's totally fine. That's not, that's not a, you know, that's not that you don't become a publisher just because you're value, you're not value neutral, but this, it's this misreading of this communications decency act that's been bumping around, bouncing around the internet and was uh, most notably picked up by Holly. So I haven't, I, I'm, I'm, I've been trying to get in touch with, with Holly's uh, people to see if he stands by that tweet uh, which which appears to have just sort of lifted this bad argument out of out of uh, a, a couple of so, op -eds so, that were written so, prior. so maybe it's just a bad tweet. We've yeah, all been I mean, guilty it, of that it, it just, as, as, opposed, so as opposed to a considered policy initiative on his yes, part. Yes, yes. What he said was the new Congress needs to investigate whether Twitter's targeting political speech and find out. Twitter is exempt from liability as a publisher because it is alleg allegedly a forum for a true diversity of political discourse that does yeah. not appear to be accurate. And that, I mean, that's a, it's a misstatement of the, the actual laws that are on the books. So, uh, Haley, you, you're going to be listening to Mike Pompeo later today? So I'm not actually allowed in the briefing, sadly. Um, oh. But I will be talking to senators who leave the briefing in a few minutes. Um, so I I expect to hear from them frustration that their answers their questions were not answered. Um, I would be surprised to hear that you know the administration was completely forthright with senators in this briefing, just yeah. going by the signals that have been given leading up to it. So I think we'll have a better sense of how people are going to vote on this Yemen war powers resolution afterward, though. Okay, I'm, I'm I'm obsessed with a few trivial things, um, in, including the fact that uh, uh, Pompeo has apparently just hired as one of his chief advisors uh, Mary Kissel, a former Wall Street Journal opinion writer. 
who has been very, very critical of Donald Trump. In fact, uh, the president uh, lashed out at her personally as a major loser who has no clue. And uh, so there was a piece in Politico. It'll be interesting to know what the uh, w- whether or not uh, Pompeo can can keep her, <laughs> whether she's going to last. The, <laughs> the the other little dazzling detail I was going to mention earlier about the president's uh, comments about the the, the the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, the Washington Post notes that, you know, he could have kept Janet Yellen uh, around, but apparently, according to this report, thought that Janet Yellen was too short. That's so rude. <laughs> so just, just, didn't, he, didn't he not hire Bolton originally because of his mustache? Yeah. I, it I seems like it a running good. theme with him. There's a thing because they just didn't look like central casting. Somebody pointed out Milton Friedman, by the way, was only five foot, uh, five foot tall. Um, and and I, and I tweeted out late last night, p- past my normal do not tweet after this hour point. Um, I broke my rule. The the picture of Nikki Haley with diamond and silk. Yeah, that was good. Oh, stuff. and I and and I just I just tweeted it out. It says it breaks my heart. And she was like, you know, talking about you know what what brave strong women they are. They're yeah. both uh, gr- grifters and con people. But, Man, you know, she it's, owned I, us. She owned us all. All of us who owned. saw her. I mean, you know, aren't they I, from South Carolina? Heroes, right. No defense. Aren't Diamond and Silk from South Carolina? I don't know. That's a good I, I, I'm pretty sure they are. So that might be part of it. Well, okay. So I don't mind the fact that she had a picture taken. That happens all the time. But then she said, so proud of these strong, beautiful women. Uh, hashtag girl power, Diamond and Silk. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm wrong. They're I'm, from North Carolina. But it's okay. next It's next door. Ah, it's, it's close. close it's, enough. it's close enough. But my, my heart is is actually still broken. Uh, at some point, though, we're going to have to have a conversation about uh, about uh, climate change. Have you noticed that I avoid talking about that? Do you know why I avoid talking about climate change on this podcast? Yes. In fact, life in general. Um, it's because I'm actually not a climate scientist. And I know that anytime I open my mouth, that everything I say will be largely um, unsupported. And I it, this is one of those debates that is incredibly frustrating, but it goes back to the, I think, I think it's a basic question navigating the modern political world, which is who do you believe? Who do you trust? What, what constitutes evidence? Um, you know, are you required to believe certain things? Is there any room for skepticism? And I have to admit that it's, it's one of the most frustrating issues to watch playing out. Um, when obviously it's, you know, in terms of like really important long-term consequences, it's it's uh, it's hard to come up with something that is more significant. But I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not inviting you guys to 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 jump in. I'm just saying that that there's a reason why I'm 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 actually trying to figure out how you can have you know a conversation and ask the questions that I have about it without having the you know the the twitterization of all politics just drop on your head you know what i mean about that i think it, one way we could do that is to have our leaders actually read a report like this um and yeah. you you saw donald trump yeah his response was basically oh i don't believe it and and i highly doubt that the president actually read that report because it's like a thousand pages long uh, but I think everyone would be, you know, benefited if we all tried to inform ourselves on, you know, what what scientists actually believe in and what these effects could be. And so if our leaders, you know, did put in the time to study this issue, um, I think it would be a more informed debate all around, which would be helpful. Um, and I think, you know, the age of just completely denying it has sort of 
moved on. Uh, like you saw Jim Bridenstine, you know, he gave a speech back in like 2013 or something um, on the House floor, you know, basically sounding like he was denying climate change or at least that human, humans were involved in it and that we were a contributing factor. And then when he was nominated to be NASA administrator, you know, his position now is, you know, humans contribute to climate change. And so you've seen some of those reversals to people who, you know, they're leaving the House of Representatives. And it was sort of like a politicized thing. Um, so I, I just would I would encourage people to actually study these things and to read this report, um, especially the president, because it, it just helps everyone for everyone to actually well, Hale, know what you're, the you're, other side is saying. You're being unfair to the president because, of course, he, what he did say was is that he is among those with very high levels of intelligence <laughs> who are not believers in climate change. That, in fact, he is so intelligent that he doesn't actually need to read these reports, uh, right? Because his gut is more important <laughs> than whatever these scientists have to say. And this course. is... Yeah, sometimes Trump goes outside and it's still cold, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's not dig ourselves a deeper hole here. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.